Chapters 31 through 33 of The Angel of Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Angel of Terror by Edgar Wallace. Chapter 31. A letter from Jack Glover arrived the next morning. He had had an easy journey, was glad to have had the opportunity of seeing Lydia, and hoped she would think over the will. Lydia was not thinking of wills, but of an excuse to get back to London. All of a sudden, the loveliness of Monte Carlo had palled upon her, and she had almost forgotten the circumstances which made the change of scene and climate so welcome. "'Go back to London, my dear?' said Mrs. Cole Mortimer, shocked. "'What a rash notion!' why it is freezing in town and foggy and and i really can't let you go back mrs cole mortimer was agitated at the very thought her own good time on the riviera depended upon lydia staying jean had made that point very clear she herself she explained to her discomforted hostess was ready to go back at once and the prolongation of Mrs. Cole Mortimer's stay depended upon Lydia's plans. A startling switch of cause and effect, for Mrs. Cole Mortimer had understood that Jean's will controlled the plans of the party. Lydia might have insisted had she really known the reason for her sudden longing for the grimy metropolis, but she could not even convince herself that the charms of Monte Carlo were contingent upon the presence there of a man who had aroused her furious indignation and with whom she had spent most of the time quarreling she mentioned her unrest to jean and jean as usual seemed to understand the riviera is rather like turkish delight very sweet but unsatisfying she said stay another week and then if you feel that way we'll all go home together this means breaking up your holiday said lydia in self-reproach not a bit denied the girl perhaps i shall feel as you do in a week's time a week jean thought that much might happen in a week in truth events began to move quickly from that night but in a way she had not anticipated mr briggerland who had been reading the newspaper through the conversation looked up they are making a great fuss of this moor in nice he said but if i remember rightly Nice invariably has some weird lion to adore. Muley Hafiz, said Lydia. Yes, I saw him the day I went to lunch with Mr. Stepney, a fine-looking man. I'm not greatly interested in natives, said Jean carelessly. What is he, a negro? Oh, no, he's fairer than... Lydia was about to say your father, but thought it discreet to find another comparison he's fairer than most of the people in the south of france she said but then all very highly bred moors are aren't they jean shook her head ethnology means nothing to me she said humorously i've got my idea of moors from shakespeare and i thought they were mostly black what is he then i haven't read the papers he is the pretender to the moorish throne said lydia and there has been a lot of trouble in the French Senate about him. France supports his claims, and the Spaniards have offered a reward for his body, dead or alive, and that has brought about a strained relationship between Spain and France. 
Jean regarded her with an amused smile. Fancy taking an interest in international politics. I suppose that is due to your working on a newspaper, Lydia. Jean discovered that she was to take greater interest in Muley Hafiz than she could have thought was possible. She had to go into Monte Carlo to do some shopping. Mentoni was nearer, but she preferred the drive into the principality. The rooms had no great call for her, and whilst Morden went to a garage to have a faulty cylinder examined, she strolled onto the terrace of the casino, down the broad steps towards the sea. The bathing huts were closed at this season, but the little road down to the beach is secluded and had been a favorite walk of hers in earlier visits. Near the huts, she passed a group of dark-looking men in long white jalabs and wondered which of these was the famous muley. One, she noticed, with a particularly negro type of face, wore on his flowing robe the scarlet ribbon of the Legion of Honor. Somehow or other, he did not seem interesting enough to be muley, she thought as she went on to a strip of beach. A man was standing on the seashore, a tall, commanding man, gazing out, it seemed, across the sunlit ocean, as though he were in search of something. He could not have heard her footfall because she was walking on the sand, and yet he must have realized her presence, for he turned, and she almost stopped at the sight of his face. He might have been a European. His complexion was fair, though his eyebrows and eyes were jet black, as also was the tiny beard and mustache he wore. Beneath the conventional jalab, he wore a dark green jacket, and she had a glimpse of glittering decorations before he pulled over his cloak so that they were hidden. But it was his eyes which held her. They were large and as black as night, and they were set in a face of such strength and dignity that Jean knew instinctively she was looking upon the Moorish pretender. They stood for a second, staring at one another, and then the Moor stepped aside. Pardon, he said in French, I am afraid I startled you. Jean was breathing a little quicker. She could not remember in her life any man who had created so immediate and favorable an impression. She forgot her contempt for native people, forgot his race, his religion, and religion was a big thing to Jean, forgot everything except that behind those eyes she recognized something which was kin to her. You are English, of course, he said in that language. Scottish, smiled Jean. It is almost the same, isn't it? He spoke without any trace of an accent, without an error of grammar, and his voice was the voice of a college man. He had left the way open for her to pass on, but she lingered. You are Muley Hafiz, aren't you? she asked, and he turned his head. I've read a great deal about you, she added, though in truth she had read nothing. He laughed, showing two rows of perfect white teeth. It was only by contrast with their whiteness that she noticed the golden brown of his complexion. I am of international interest, he said lightly, and glanced round toward his attendants. She thought he was going and would have moved on, but he stopped her. You are the first English-speaking person I have talked to since I've been in France, he said, except the American ambassador. He smiled at a pleasant recollection. You talk almost like an Englishman yourself. I was at Oxford, he said. My brother was at Harvard. 
My father, the brother of the late Sultan, was a very progressive man and believed in the Western education for his children. Won't you sit down? he asked, pointing to the sand. She hesitated a second and then sank to the ground and crossing his legs he sat by her. I was in France for four years. He carried on, evidently anxious to hold her in conversation. So I speak both languages fairly well. Do you speak Arabic? He asked the question solemnly, but his eyes were bright with laughter. Not very well, she answered gravely. Are you staying very long? It was a conventional question, and she was unprepared for the reply. I leave tonight, he said, though very few people know it. You have surprised a state secret. He smiled again, and then he began to talk of Morocco and its history, and with extraordinary ease he traced the story of the families which had ruled that troubled state. He touched lightly on his own share in the rebellion, which had almost brought about a European war. My uncle seized the throne, you know, he said, taking up a handful of sand and tossing it up in the air. He defeated my father and killed him, and then we caught his two sons. What happened to them? asked Jean curiously. Oh, we killed them, he said carelessly. I had them hanged in front of my tent. You're shocked? She shook her head. Do you believe in killing your enemies? She nodded. Why not? It's the only logical thing to do. My brother joined forces with the present sultan, and if I ever catch him, I shall hang him too, he smiled. And if he catches you, she asked. Why, he'll hang me, he laughed. That is the rule of the game. How strange, she said, half to herself. Do you think so? I suppose from the European standpoint... No, no, she stopped him. I wasn't thinking of that. You are logical, and you do the logical thing. That is how I would treat my enemies. If you had any, he suggested. She nodded. If I had any, she repeated with a hard little smile. Will you tell me this? Do I call you Mr. Muley or Lord Muley? You may call me Wazir, if you're so hard up for a title he said, and the little idiom sounded queer from him. Well, Wazir, will you tell me? Suppose somebody who had something that you wanted very badly, and they wouldn't give it to you, and you had the power to destroy them, what would you do? I should suddenly destroy them, said Muley Hafiz. It is unnecessary to ask. The common rule, a simple plan, he quoted. Her eyes were fixed on his face and she was frowning, though this she did not know. "'I'm glad I met you this afternoon,' she said. "'It must be wonderful living in that atmosphere, the atmosphere of might and power, where men and women aren't governed by the finicking rules which vitiate the Western world.' He laughed. "'Then you are tired of your Western civilization,' he said as he rose and helped her to her feet. His hands were long and delicate, and she grew breathless at the touch of them. You must come along to my little city in the hills, where the law is the sword of Muley Hafiz. She looked at him a moment. I almost wish I could, she said, and held out her hand. He took it in the European fashion and bowed over it. She seemed so tiny a thing by the side of him. Her head did not reach his shoulder. Goodbye, 
she said hurriedly, and turning, walked back the way she had come, and he stood watching her until she was out of sight. End of chapter 31 Chapter 32 Jean! She looked around to meet the scowling gaze of Marcus Stepney. I must say, you're the limit, he said violently. There are lots of things I imagine you do, but to stand there in broad daylight talking to a nigger. If I stand in broad daylight and talk to a card sharper, Marcus, I think I'm just low enough to do almost anything. A damned Moorish nigger, he spluttered and her eyes narrowed. Walk up the road with me, and if you possibly can, keep your voice down to the level which gentlemen usually employ when talking to women, she said. She was in better condition than he, and he was a little out of breath by the time they reached the Café de Paris, which was crowded at that hour with the afternoon tea people. He found a quiet corner, and by this time his anger, and a little of his courage, had evaporated. I've only your best interest at heart, Jean he said almost pleadingly. But you don't want people in our set to know you've been hobnobbing with this infernal moor. When you say our set, to which set are you referring? She asked unpleasantly. Because if it is the set I believe you mean, they can't think too badly of me for my liking. It would be degradation for me to be admired by your set, Marcus. Oh, come on now, he began feebly. I thought I had made it clear to you, and I hoped you would carry the marks to your dying day. There was malice in her voice, and he winced. That I do not allow you to dominate my life or to censor my actions. The nigger you refer to was more of a gentleman than you can ever be, Marcus, because he has breed, which the Lord didn't give you. The waiter brought the tea at that moment and the conversation passed to unimportant topics until he had gone. I'm rather rattled, he apologized. I lost 6,000 louis last night. Then you have 6,000 reasons why you should keep on good terms with me, said Jean, smiling cheerfully. That caveman stuff, he asked and shook his head. She'd raise Cain. Jean was laughing inside herself, but she did not show her merriment. You can but try, she said. I've already told you how it can be done. I'll try tomorrow, he said after a thought. By heavens, I'll try tomorrow. It was on the tip of her tongue to say, not tomorrow, but she checked herself. Morden came round with the car to pick her up soon after. Morden, her little chin jerked up with a gesture of annoyance, which she seldom permitted herself and yet she felt unusually cheered. Her meeting with the moor was a milestone in her life, from which memory she could draw both encouragement and comfort. "'You met Muley?' said Lydia. "'How thrilling! What is he like, Jean? Was he a blackamoor?' "'No, he wasn't a blackamoor,' said the girl quietly. "'He was an unusually intelligent man.' <laughs> "'Grunted her father. "'How'd you come to meet him, my dear?' I picked him up on the beach, said Jean coolly, as any flapper would pick up any nut. Mr. Briggerland choked. I hate to hear you talking like that, Jean. Who introduced him? I told you, she said complacently. I introduced myself. 
I talked to him on the beach, and he talked to me, and we sat down and played with the sand and discussed one another's lives. But how enterprising of you, Jean, said the admiring Lydia. Mr. Briggerland was going to say something, but he thought better of it. There was a concert at the theater that night, and the whole party went. They had a box, and the interval had come before Lydia saw somebody ushered into a box on the other side of the house, with such evidence of deference that she would have known who he was even if she had not seen the scarlet fez and the white robe. "'It is your muley,' she whispered. Jean looked round. Muley Havis was looking across at her. His eyes immediately sought the girl's, and he bowed slightly. "'What the devil is he bowing at?' grumbled Mr. Briggerland. "'You didn't take any notice of him, did you, Jean?' "'I bowed to him,' said his daughter, not troubling to look round. "'Don't be silly, father. Anyway, if he weren't nice, it would be quite the right thing to do. I am the most distinguished woman in the house because I know Muley Hafiz, and he has bowed to me. Don't you realize that the social value of a lion's recognition?' Lydia could not see him distinctly. She had an impression of a white face, two large black spaces where his eyes were, and a black beard. He sat all the time in the shadow of a curtain. Jean looked round to see if Marcus Stepney was present, hoping that he had witnessed the exchange of courtesies. But Marcus at that moment was watching little bundles of 12,000 franc notes raked across the croupier's end of the table, which is the business end of Monte Carlo. Jean was the last to leave the car when it set them down at the Villa Casa. Morden called her respectfully. "'Excuse me, mademoiselle,' he said. "'I wish you would come to the garage and see the new tires that have arrived. I don't like them.' It was a code which she had agreed he should use when he wanted her. "'Very good, Morden. I will come to the garage later,' she said carelessly. "'What does Morden want you for?' asked her father with a frown. "'You heard him. He doesn't approve of some new tires that have been brought for the car,' she said coolly. "'And don't ask me questions. I've got a headache, and I'm dying for a cup of chocolate.' "'If that fella gives you any trouble, he'll be sorry,' said Briggerland. "'And let me tell you this, Jean. That marriage idea of yours—' She only looked at him, but he knew the look and wilted. "'I don't want to in interfere with your private affairs.' he mumbled, but the very thought of it gets me crazy. The garage was a brick building erected by the side of the carriage drive, built much nearer the house than is usually the case. Jean waited a reasonable time before she slipped away. Morden was waiting for her before the open doors of the garage. The place was in darkness, and she did not see him standing in the entrance until she was within a few paces of the man. Come up to my room, he said briskly. "'What do you want?' she asked. "'I want to speak to you, and this is not the place.' "'This is the only place where I am prepared to speak to you at the moment, Francis,' she said reproachfully. "'Don't you realize that my father is within hearing, and at any moment Madame Meredith may come out? How would I explain my presence in your room?' He did not answer for a moment. Then, "'Jean, I am worried.' he said in a troubled voice. I cannot understand your plans. They are too clever for me, and I have known men and women of great attainment. The great Bersac... The great Bersac is dead, she said coldly. 
He was a man of such great attainments that he came to the knife. Besides, it is not necessary that you should understand my plans, Francis. She knew quite well what was troubling him, but she waited. I cannot understand the letter which I wrote for you said morden the letter in which i say madame meredith loved me i have thought this matter out jean and it seems to me that i am compromised she laughed softly poor francis she said mockingly with whom could you be compromised but with your future wife if i desire you to write that letter what else matters again he was silent i cannot speak here he said almost roughly you must come to my room she hesitated there was something in his voice she did not like very well she said and followed him up the steep stairs end of chapter 32 chapter 33 now explain his words were a command his tone peremptory Jean, who knew men and read them without error, realized that this was not a moment to temporize. "'I will explain to you, Francis, but I do not like the way you speak,' she said. "'It is not you I wish to compromise, but Madame Meredith.' "'In the letter I wrote you, I said I was going away. I confess that I had forged a check for five million francs.' That is a very serious document, mademoiselle, to be in the possession of anybody but myself. He looked at her straight in the eyes, and she met his gaze unflinchingly. The thing will be made very clear to you tomorrow, Francis, she said softly, and really there is no reason to worry. I wish to end this unhappy state of affairs. With me? he asked quickly. No, with Madame Meredith, she answered. I, too, am tired of waiting for marriage, and I intend asking my father's permission for the wedding to take place next week. Indeed, Francis, she lowered her eyes modestly, I have already written to the British consul at Nice, asking him to arrange the ceremony to be performed. The sallow face of the chauffeur flashed a dull red. Do you mean that? he asked eagerly. Jean, you are not deceiving me she shook her head no francis she said in that low plaintive voice of hers i could not deceive you in a matter so important to myself he stood watching her his breast heaving his eyes devouring her then you will give me back that letter i wrote jean he said i will give it to you tomorrow tonight he said and he took both her hands in his i am sure i am right it is too dangerous a letter to be in existence, Jean. Dangerous for you and me. You will let me have it tonight? She hesitated. It is in my room, she said, an unnecessary statement, and in the circumstances, a dangerous one, for his eyes dropped to the bag that hung at her wrist. It is there, he said. Jean, darling, do as I ask, he pleaded. You know, every time I think of that letter, I go cold. I was a madman when I wrote it. I have not got it here, she said steadily. She tried to draw back, but it was too late. He gripped her wrists and pulled the bag roughly from her hand. Forgive me, but I know I am right, he began, and then like a fury she flew at him, 
wrenched the bag from his hand, and by the very violence of her attack flung him backward. He stared at her, and the color faded from his face, leaving it a dead white. "'What is this you are trying to do?' he glowered at her. "'I will see you in the morning, Francis,' she said, and turned. Before she could reach the head of the stairs, his arm was around her, and he had dragged her back. "'My friend,' he said between his teeth, "'there is something in this matter which is bad for me.' let me go she breathed and struck at his face for a full minute they struggled and then the door opened and mr briggerland came in and at the sight of his livid face morden released his hold you swine hissed the big man his fist shot out and morden went down with a crash to the ground for a moment he was stunned and then with a snarl he turned over on his side and whipped a revolver from his hip pocket before he could fire the girl had gripped the pistol and wrenched it from his hand get up said briggerland sternly now explain to me my friend what you mean by this disgraceful attack upon mademoiselle the man rose and dusted himself mechanically and there was that in his face which boded no good to mr briggerland before he could speak jean intervened father she said quietly you have no right to strike francis francis spluttered briggerland his face dark purple with rage francis she repeated calmly it is right that you should know that francis and i will be married next week mr briggerland's jaw dropped what he almost shrieked she nodded we are going to be married next week she said and the little scene you witnessed has nothing whatever to do with you the effect of these words on morden was magical the malignant frown which had distorted his face cleared away he looked from jean to briggerland as though it were impossible to believe the evidence of his ears francis and i love one another jean went on in her even voice we have quarreled tonight on a matter which has nothing to do with anybody save ourselves you're going to marry him next week said mr briggerland dully by god you'll do nothing of the sort she raised her hand it is too late for you to interfere father she said quietly francis and i shall go our way and face our own fate i'm sorry you disapprove because you have always been a very loving father to me that was the first hint mr briggerland had received that there might be some other explanation for her words and he became calmer very well he said i can only tell you that i strongly disapprove of the action you have taken and that i shall do nothing whatever to further your reckless scheme but i must insist upon your coming back to the house now i cannot have my daughter talked about she nodded i will see you tomorrow morning early francis she said perhaps you will drive me into nice before breakfast i have some purchases to make he bowed and reached out his hand for the revolver which she had taken from him she looked at the ornate weapon its silver-plated metal parts the graceful ivory handle i'm not going to trust you with this tonight she said with her rare smile good night francis he took her hand and kissed it good night jean he said in a tremulous voice for a moment their eyes met 
and then she turned as though she dared not trust herself and followed her father down the stairs they were halfway to the house when she laid her hand on briggerland's arm keep this she said it was francis's revolver it is probably loaded and i thought i saw some silver initials inlaid in the ivory handle if i know francis morden they are his what do you want me to do with it he said as she slipped the weapon into his pocket she laughed <laughs> on your way to bed come in my room she said i've got quite a lot to tell you and she sailed into the drawing-room to interrupt mrs cole mortimer who was teaching a weary lydia the elements of bazique where have you been jean asked lydia putting down her cards i've been arranging a novel experience for you but i'm not so sure that it will be as interesting as it might it all depends upon the state of your young heart said jean pulling up a chair my young heart is very healthy laughed lydia what is the interesting experience are you in love challenged jean searching in a big bag where she kept her handiwork for a piece of unfinished sewing jean's domesticity was always a source of wonder to lydia in love good heavens no so much the better nodded jean that sounds as though the experience will be fascinating she waited until she had threaded the fine needle before she explained if you really are not in love and you sit on the lover's chair the name of your future husband will come to you if you're in love of course that complicates matters a little but suppose i don't want to know the name of my future husband then you're inhuman said jean where is this magical chair it is on the san remo road beyond the frontier station you've been there haven't you margaret once said mrs cole mortimer who had not been to the east of cap martin but whose rule it was to never admit that she had missed anything worth seeing it's a wild eerie spot jean went on and miles from any human habitation are you going to take me jean shook her head that would ruin the spell she said solemnly no my dear if you want that thrill and seriously it is worth while because the scenery is the most beautiful of any along the coast then you must go alone lydia nodded i'll try it is it too far to walk much too far said jean morden will drive you out he knows the road very well and you ought not to take anybody but an experienced driver i have a permit for the car to pass the frontier you will probably meet father in san remo he is taking a motorcycle trip aren't you daddy mr briggerland drew a long breath and nodded he was beginning to understand end of chapter thirty three